Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Folks, with what I've been seeing in the news, sounds like we needed a little history lesson. So our topic today is socialism. And we're going to get the history of it. Let's start with Jeremy Bentham, 1748 to 1832. He was an English philosopher who came up with all kinds of ideas to improve the plight of the common man. He taught based on the idea of utility which simply stated that the goal of any action should be to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And his followers became known as utilitarians. He said that government should govern as little as possible, but it should step in when the pains suffered by many exceed the pleasures enjoyed by a few. Sound familiar? Now, along comes another fellow by the name of John Stuart Mill. 1806 to 1873, another English philosopher who took the teachings of Bentham and organized his own utilitarian society. He said laborers should be allowed to organize unions, form co-ops, and receive a share of the profits. He said all men should be able to vote and should be prepared to do so by receiving a free education at state expense. And finally, he said women should have all these same rights. Now think about that, some pretty crazy talk back in the 1850s. Now, in his later years, Mills referred to himself as a socialist. Now, this led to a group known as Utopian Socialists. Two of the chief Utopian Socialists were Claude St. Simon and Charles Fourier, who came up with their own ideas of the perfect society. Claude St. Simon developed a plan for the perfect French government. He wanted a supreme power given to a parliament made up of ten industrialists, five artists, five philosophers, five chemists, five physiologists, five physicists, five astronomers, and five mathematicians. And the whole group would be presided over by one of the math guys. Now, if you think that's bizarre, let's talk about Charles Fourier, who was way out there. Another Frenchman, he was shocked by the difference in living conditions between the rich and the poor in Lyon, France. He said that just as Isaac Newton came up with the force holding planets together, he had found the force holding people together. He believed that it was possible to make all work into play, to make it pleasurable and desirable, 
and deeply satisfying, both physically and mentally. This was perhaps the one vision of Fourier's thought that most captivated other socialist thinkers of the 19th century, including Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Now, the device which Fourier proposed was what he called a philanster. He said it would be like the ancient Greek phalanx, where men were tightly linked together, forming a highly interdependent and impenetrable fighting unit. Fourier's phalanx was to become a self-contained community on about 400 acres, housing 1,600 members designed to encourage dynamic interplay of various human passions. Now, why 1,600 people? Well, Fourier had determined that were, there were about 800 different, different psychological types. He called them passions. If you multiply this by two, male and female, you arrive at the figure of 1,600. Here, the law of passion attractions would be allowed to operate unfettered in the first time in history. Now, each phalanx would be self-sufficient, and all the people would live in one large building. He said this arrangement would provide for the social passions and would make the routine of daily living more efficient with one large kitchen and all the housekeeping could be done by little boys who love to get dirty anyhow. So you can see he's kind of out there. Now, the workplace would be made as pleasant as possible with bright lighting, frequent redecoration, and workers would change jobs eight times a day so they wouldn't get bored. You worked from 4 a.m. to 9 p.m. with five meals a day. You would sleep only five hours since a variety of work wouldn't make you tired. He said you wouldn't need doctors because everybody would live to be 140 years old. He also advocated complete sexual freedom. My question is, on five hours sleep? And he said marriage was just for old folks since they were too old to fool around anymore anyhow. Now, according to Fourier, there are 12 fundamental passions, five of the senses, touch, taste, hearing, sight, and smell, four of the soul, friendship, love, ambition, and parenthood, and three that he called distributive. Now, the first eight passions are self-explanatory. It is the distributive passions that deserve closer attention. Now, the first of these distributive passions refers to the love of variety. A worker quickly tires of one kind of task, just as lovers, in spite of their initial attraction, soon find themselves looking elsewhere. Fourier held Christianity in deep contempt because it made people feel guilty when they pursued their natural desire for variety in work or in sex. For the same reasons, he also hated Adam Smith's vision of a society of specialists, doing the same thing over and over all the time in the division of labor. However, the productive advantages of Smith's economic system, the fact remained, according to Fourier, that created only stunted and repressed human beings. He said society should strive to eliminate all tedious and unpleasant jobs, learning, if possible, to do without the products created from such labor. 
Now, the second of the distributive passions had to do with rivalry and conspiracy. Now, while in previous societies this passion caused many problems, in the phalanx it would be put to good use. Productive teams would compete with one another to produce the most delicious peaches or the best pair of shoes. The need to compete would satisfy a natural passion because all men, by nature, are competitive. And the harmful aspects of competitive commerce and civilization would not be reproduced because production would keep the overall good of society in mind, rather than encouraging individual profit in the market. And finally was the distributive passion which Fourier considered the most beautiful of all. Fourier seems to have meant a combination of two or more different varieties of passions. The sharing of a good meal, which ties to the senses, in good company, which ties to the soul, while conspiring to arrange a sexual orgy with the couple at the next table. This is why some of the liberal scholars of the 1960s studied Fourier. He was a huge advocate of sexual liberation and a staunch defender of sexual preferences that were clearly not accepted by religion or society of the time. He believed that the only sexual activity that could be forbidden involved pain or force. He was willing to accept any sexual activity, including homosexuality, that he said satisfied man's natural needs. Fourier was also a radical feminist. He considered the position of women in his surrounding society as a form of slavery. In one famous passage, he set it down that the level of any civilization could be determined by the extent to which its women had been liberated. He believed that the existing family structure was partly responsible for the subjugation of women. The family turned people exclusively inward to spouse and children, rather than outward toward society. Now Fourier's vision, together with his criticism of the existing systems, make him as one of the leading prophets of 19th century socialism. Let's face it, folks. This guy was a hippie, born a hundred years too early. Communes, free sex, women's lib. Sound familiar? Now along comes Karl Marx, who had read the ideas of people like St. Simon and Fourier. He took socialism to a whole new level. It was called revolutionary communism. Now, the socialists had pushed for gradual change over a number of years. Marx said that'll never happen. Governments and big business would not voluntarily switch to a socialist society, and the only way to make it happen was through revolution bringing about immediate change. Bottom line, communism is socialism at the end of a barrel of a gun. Communism puts the reins of power into the hands of just a few strongmen who end up calling the shots. It's a system in which suspicion and treason tend to hang in the air. So every, whatever you want to call it, folks, socialism, communism, utopianism, collectivism, even democratic socialism or progressivism, they all have a common heritage. Lenin and his gang all started out calling themselves socialists. Social democrats, to be exact. So the fact remains, the path of socialism is ultimately paved with coercion, censorship, and yes, terror.
So what is the difference between socialism and communism? Now, communism and socialism are economic and political structures that promote equality and seek to eliminate social classes. Sometimes the two are used interchangeably. As we know now, they are indeed different. Now, in theory, socialism and communism sound good. Everyone doing their share and working together to provide for the greater good. Each utilizes a planned production schedule to ensure the needs of all community members are met. In a communist society, everything is owned by the working class, and everyone works towards the same communal goal. There are no wealthy and poor classes. Instead, all are equal. Production from the community is distributed based upon need, not by effort or amount of work. It is expected that basic needs for each worker are met by the community, and there is no more to be obtained through working more than what is required. For example, if a worker puts in more time at work, he sees no additional reward. The worker receives the same government benefits and rations of food and clothing as before. Therefore, this type of economy often results in poor production, mass poverty, and little advancement. This occurred in the 1980s to the Soviet Union, when poverty became so widespread, rebellions and revolutions caused that nation to collapse. Socialism shares similarities to communism, but at a lesser extreme. As in communism, equality is the main focus. Instead of workers owning the facilities and tools of production, workers are paid and allowed to spend their wages as they choose, while the governing body owns and operates the means of production for the benefit of the working class. In other words, the government owns all the factories. Each worker is provided with necessities so he is able to produce without worry for his basic needs. Still, advancement and production are limited because there is no incentive to do a better job or to achieve more. Without motivation to succeed, such as the ability to own an income-producing business, Workers' human instincts tell them to do the minimum. There are no rewards for working harder than your neighbor. Both communism and socialism are opposites of capitalism, with no private ownership and class equality. In capitalism, reward comes naturally, without limitation to workers who work harder than their neighbor. When there's profit, the owner can freely keep it, and he has no obligation to share his spoils with anybody else. A capitalist environment facilitates competition, and the result is unlimited advancement opportunity. In modern society, many countries have adopted pieces of socialism into their economic and political policies. For example, in the United Kingdom, markets are allowed to fluctuate rather freely, and workers have unlimited earning potential based on their work. However, basic needs like health care are provided to everyone regardless of time or effort in their work. The welfare programs like food stamps in the United States are also forms of socialist policies that fit into an otherwise capitalist society. So socialism and communism both involve ceding to the state control over the distribution of goods and services for the masses. This involves giving up individual rights and giving the state a good measure of control over our personal lives. This road always leads to tyranny, no matter what you pave it with and no matter what you name it. The historical fact is 
that the government in these systems and their leaders eventually take control of everything that's produced. This includes medicine, education, housing, food, transportation, you name it. The government then bureaucratically rations out, as they see fit, the means of human survival. In the end, you've basically got an elite core of mobsters with the power to decide which folks are more equal than others. Socialism also has a way of producing bloated bureaucracies that in turn produce even greater poverty. Along the way, this produces even more corruption and cronyism that we see today in our own government. Censorship becomes the norm, because let's face it folks, dissent cannot be tolerated or the system would collapse. The more than 100 million victims of communism and socialism worldwide shows just how slippery a slope this is, folks. Any person with common sense who is familiar with the history and realities of socialism should do everything possible to avoid going down that minefield of a road again. So now that I've given you a little history on socialism, let's use a, a cute story I've heard to kind of explain it in modern terms. Seems there was a chemistry professor in a large college that had some exchange students in his class. One day, while class was in the lab, the professor noticed one young man, an exchange student, who kept rubbing his back and stretching as if his back hurt. The professor asked the young man what was the matter. The student told him he had a bullet lodged in his back. He'd been shot while fighting communists in his native country who were trying to overthrow his country's government and install a new communist regime. In the midst of his story, he looked at the professor and asked a strange question. He asked, Do you know how to catch wild pigs? The professor thought it was a joke and asked for the punchline. The student said that it was no joke. You catch wild pigs by finding a suitable place in the woods and putting corn on the ground. The pigs find it and begin to come every day to eat the free food. When they're used to coming every day, you put a fence down one side of the place where they're used to coming. When they get used to the fence, they begin to eat the corn again, and you put up another side of the fence. They get used to that and start to eat again. You continue until you have all four sides of the fence up with a gate in the last side. The pigs, which are used to the free corn, start to come through the gate to eat that free corn day in and day out. You then slam the gate on them and catch the whole herd. Suddenly the wild pigs have lost their freedom. They run around and around inside the fence, but they're caught. Soon they go back to eating the free corn. They're so used to it that they have forgotten how to forage in the woods for themselves, so they accept their captivity. The young man then told the professor that is exactly what he sees happening in America and Canada. The government keeps pushing us toward communism and socialism and keeps spreading the free corn out in the form of programs such as supplemental income, tax credit for unearned income, tax exemptions, welfare entitlements, free health care, etc. Why we continually lose our freedoms just a little bit at a time. Now here's a thought to remember. 
Karl Marx said, Remove one freedom per generation, and soon you'll have no freedom, and no one would have noticed. Now, in 1936, when Franklin Roosevelt sought re-election to the presidency, some of his critics labeled him a socialist. The charge was so incendiary that the White House moved quickly to rebut it, labeling it an accusation which no patriotic, honorable, decent citizen would purposely inject into American affairs. Meanwhile, the overwhelming and seemingly improbable support among America's youth for the 74-year-old Bernie Sanders, a self-described democratic socialist who once proudly defended communist dictatorships across the world, is the latest example of a historical illiteracy that treats socialism as a benign economic system that is more equitable and fair than capitalism. A Pew polling report from June 2015 shows a staggering 69% of voters under 30 expressed a willingness to vote for a socialist for president of the U.S. This was well before Sanders' electoral successes in the early Democratic primaries. A more recent YouGov survey found that voters under 30 actually have a higher opinion of socialism, 43% in favor, than they do of capitalism, 32% in favor. For older people, socialism is associated with communism and the Soviet Union and the Cold War, says Michelle Diggles, a senior policy analyst at Third Way, a liberal D.C. think tank. The oldest millennials were eight years old when the Berlin Wall fell. They have never known a world where the Soviet Union exists. The connotations associated with the word socialism just don't exist with millennials. Now today, 20% of the world's population continues to live under communist regimes. In China, Vietnam, Cuba, Venezuela, Laos, North Korea. These countries are some of the worst violators of human rights in history. Maybe we should have seen this loss of historical memory coming. Perhaps we should have heard the alarm bells of a 2011 Newsweek survey that reported 73% of Americans couldn't correctly say why we fought the Cold War in response to a question taken from the official test for U.S. citizenship. Ignorance of socialism and America's decades-long struggle against it has become the norm, and the data suggests this norm will only get worse as a generation of Americans pass away and national memory fades. Now, for a generation with no memory of bomb shelter drills or sledgehammers smashing the Berlin Wall to pieces, the sad reality of life under socialist rule has been forgotten and the lessons of the Cold War have been relegated to the ash heap of history, alongside communism. Instead, the concept of socialism has often been confused with liberalism. Now, socialism seems like a fine idea that means a more social, equitable society for everyone. Free health care, free education for starters. Socialism is not roads, welfare, and free education. Socialism has always had a more ominous goal and shares close historical and ideological connections with more evil terms, Marxism and communism. Karl Marx took socialism to what he viewed as its natural conclusion, the abolition of private property. 
Class warfare is a long-running theme in socialism, even in this country. American socialist and failed presidential candidate Eugene Debs promised a world where no man will work to make a profit for another. To break down the supremacy of one class, the ultimate aim of socialism, whether collectivism or communist, is to transform capitalist property into social property. The process of transforming capitalist property, that is, something legitimately purchased, inherited, or otherwise earned, into social property for everyone, is when socialism becomes sinister. This promise of redistribution of wealth always involves winners and losers picked by the government. What if one has acquired capitalist property and does not wish it to become social property? Well, then the government might have to step in and take it. The loss of private property, which ensures one's independent livelihood, by force erodes one's ability to exercise free speech. What if the owner of some capitalist property taken by the government dares to protest its seizure? That sort of dissent must be stifled to maintain order. So free speech is replaced by government-sanctioned propaganda. Unpopular opinions are shamed, and those expressing them are barred from forums like colleges and universities. Does any of this sound familiar, folks? Now how do we know? Because we've seen it happen time and again. 100 years ago, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia showed the danger of combining socialist ideas with totalitarian violence, which created modern totalitarian communism. It was the Bolshevik leader, Vladimir Lenin, who expressed a sort of unifying theory, finally achieving Marx's goals. Lenin stated, in striving for socialism, we are convinced it will develop into communism. The result in more than 40 national experiments since then has been either a totalitarian dictatorship or economic collapse, costing some 100 million lives before the communist experiment collapsed in Europe and the Soviet Union. To be sure, not everyone in these societies was a loser, which gets at one of the most interesting paradoxes of all socialist systems, the extreme inequality that allows a small group of a party to control the political and economic power in a country to the exclusion of the overwhelming majority of the citizens. Only socialist countries have achieved the tragic distinction of launching rockets into outer space while millions of their citizens starve to death in famine. Why are we seeing this rise in socialism? There's a huge generation gap in today's society when it comes to knowledge concerning socialism. A survey and report by Emily Eakins, a research fellow and director of polling at the Cato Institute, recently published an article in The Federalist. Her research points out that while a majority of voters under 30 support socialism, that figure drops to a mere 15% among those over 65. The reason for this is not difficult to see. It reflects a difference in personal experience. Millennials either miss the Cold War entirely or were young children in its final years, with little or no conception of the triumph of liberty achieved with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. 
they do not understand the menace that socialism posed to the people that enslaved that were enslaved and to the free nations that it threatened the violence and brutality of communist regimes of the past are irrelevant to these folks just lines in a history book somewhere between the spanish-american war and 9-11 it's more personal for older americans perhaps some of their friends or neighbors or they themselves arrived in this country just ahead of soviet tanks that were rolling into their homeland perhaps they remember the stories of citizens of those supposed supposed utopian socialist prison states who were arrested disappeared tortured or shot simply for trying to cross a border perhaps they remembered cowering under their school desks during drills in case of a nuclear attack planned in communist russia and launched from communist cuba this is the context young american voters should know as they prepare to cast their votes for upcoming elections we cannot forget the lessons of history it seems like only a few years ago being called a socialist in american politics was an insult millennials are simply not that alarmed by the idea of socialism in fact Millennials are the only age cohort in which more are favorable towards socialism than unfavorable. Young people are also more comfortable with a political candidate who describes him or herself as a socialist. So why are millennials so much more favorable towards socialism compared to older Americans? Simple answer Millennials don't know what socialism is. You're listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley, Socialism Part 1 and 2, and he will be back in just a minute with Socialism Part 3. 